This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did 1980s films like Kidco inspire you to achieve more as a child? Grab a shovel and let's start slinging sh- Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of toys, from a couple of manure salesmen, (laughs) from a couple of manure salesmen. My name is Will and joining me as always is my friend and co-host Ray. How are we doing today? I'm doing well. Hey, today on the show, we are going to be speaking with legendary child actor, Mr. Scott Schwartz, star of The Toy, star of A Christmas Story. And Kid Co, three iconic classic films from the early 1980s. And we'll be doing that a little bit later. Before that, hey, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, review, comment. Tell somebody about the idiots. You want to get us a, a holiday present, whether you celebrate Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa? We do too. So <laughs> yeah. We give you a present every week. It's free. What do we want in return? Just, just like or subscribe or tell a friend about the show, right? That's You know what the easiest way to tell a friend about the show is? How? I have no idea. Going to Tee Public oh. and buying a magnet to oh. put on their fridge. On their fridge. So when they ask you, yeah. what did you put on my fridge? Mm-hmm. Then you tell them about the show. Yeah. It's an icebreaker. Okay, let's let's reenact what that's going to be like, right? I'll be the person who, because yeah. this is how it would be, really, if this really happened. Mm-hmm. You would be the person coming into my house, putting a magnet right. I didn't ask for on right. my refrigerator, and I'd be the one finding it. Okay, ready? Okay. All right, here we go. Ray, what the hell is this magnet doing on my fridge? You're welcome. That, (laughs) (laughs) my gift to you is a reminder that you need to listen to the idiots Uh every single week. Mm. They have great content. And scene. Okay. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. Hey, today on 80s news, we have just learned via deadline that we are going to be getting a new reincarnation of Toxic Avenger starring none other than Peter Dinklage, fresh off of Game of Thrones, a show which I didn't watch, but I hear it's very good. According to Deadline, Dinklage is set to star in Legendary's new Toxic Avenger movie with Macon Blair on board to direct. Of course, uh, this is going to be a reimagining of Troma Entertainment's successful 1984 low-budget action comedy hit, um, which is, you know, it's steeped in environmental themes that plagued us during the 1980s. We were concerned with toxic waste. That was one of the things. Nuclear annihilation, toxic waste. I don't know what else. I think bullying too, because he's bullying. getting picked on a lot. Yeah, so it, it, that movie hit on a lot of different themes. So their new take on it is that it's going to follow a struggling everyman who was pushed into a vat of toxic waste, transformed into a mutant freak who must go from shunned outcast to underdog hero as he races to save his son. So that's very different than the original one. But what did we have? We had a guy who was like a janitor. Yeah, he's a janitor, and he got chucked into the into the toxic. He's waste. wearing a tutu because these girls trick him into wearing it, and right. that's why Toxie has on the the tutu when he transforms, and he just right. always has it. Right. That's about as much as I remember about that. Except for I do remember they filmed some of this right down the street from where I lived in in Jersey City, New Jersey, and everybody was so excited about it. We didn't know what it was going to be, you know, you know, we just knew a movie was being made in our neighborhood. And, you know, the word was, if you showed up, you know, you might be able to be in the movie. 
And the scene that they shot, it's when the, the, I think the bad guys are trying to run him over with a car and the car winds up going yeah. off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So they shot that down the street from where I lived and they had blocked off the street down below because it really is a cliff there. They really did this. They really just ran that car off a cliff, uh, which they would do in, you know, 1980s, of course. Yeah. And I remember after the movie was done, because I didn't get to be in the movie, I took my bike and I pedaled it down to below the cliff to see if I could find any parts of the car. Because I thought, when this movie comes out, I'm going to have a piece of the car and that'll be cool. (laughs) But they did a pretty good job cleaning up all the big parts. That combined with the fact that there was just a lot of trash down there, probably (laughs) all the time. (laughs) I didn't find anything, so. Uh, That's sad. I would have loved to have had a piece of the car from Toxic Avenger. Right? We didn't, yeah, we didn't know what it was going to be. I certainly didn't know it was going to be the, you know, the cult hit that it is now. Of course, the original film became a success after its long run as a midnight movie in New York City and ultimately led to sequels, including Toxic Avenger Part 2, Toxic Avenger Part 3, which was the last temptation of Toxie, and <laughs> Citizen Toxie, the Toxic <laughs> Avenger 4. Ultimately, the property has become a stage musical. Uh, we talked about that many, many episodes ago. Yeah. A children's cartoon series and even a Marvel comic. I guess, we'll, you know, we'll wait to see what it is. Uh, like we said, Peter Dinklage is, you know, thought of very well from the uh, Game of Thrones. Of course, he was in Pixels, which you love. Mm-hmm. Seems like he takes his chances with a different mix of kinds of films, and it's very possible this will be great. He's an elf, He's an elf too. He's an elf. That's right. Let's give this one the wait and see. We need a board. You know, I need a board, like a physical board. I could just start pinning up all the things we talk about, films, TV shows that we're waiting to see if they turn out to be good. <laughs> so we can remember to follow up and, you know, yeah, see if they're trash. We're going to have to get Lonnie to go and listen to all the episodes and just put them on the board mm. for us. Yes. And then we'll have to come up with a rating system for you. Now, I know if they're bad, this is what you would say, garbage. What I can't think of offhand is what you'd say if it's good, though. Mm. Maybe you never say anything's good. That's not true. Yeah, that's not true. I think I say, hey, that was good. All right, well, there we have it. There's the rating system. Garbage, eh, and good. There's a middle tier. There is. So speaking of 80s films, we just got confirmation from Mel Gibson that Lethal Weapon 5 is absolutely happening. Mel Gibson's actually making the circuit right now, promoting a new movie of his called Fat Man, where apparently he plays a gun-toting Santa who's... Bent on Revenge? I had no idea, but that sounds amazing. Yeah, I did want to look it up. And the articles don't focus on that. They focus on that he was asked about the 1987 film and whether or not we're going to get see another sequel. And he said, absolutely, quote, the man behind all that, the man who brought it to the screen and gave it the goodies is working on it right now. He's a legend. And quote, of course, he's talking about uh, Richard Donner, mm-hmm. who hasn't directed a movie since 2006 and is now 90 years old. We're not sure what capacity Donner might be working on the film, if he's pulling it together as a producer, if he's writing the script, uh, if he's if he's going to direct it. But again, he's been sort of out of it uh, for some time now. I, I hate to be mean, but I kind of hope he has a slight dementia thing. <laughs> and he is just writing some of the craziest shit. And oh. he's just mixing all the different movies he did together. Yeah. So we get like a Goonies reunion in or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he slips and starts writing a, a Goonies sequel mm-hmm. in the middle of it. Oh, and- yeah. And he gets all the characters confused and he starts thinking like, mm. I'm too old for this shit. But then yeah. he's like, it's our time now. <laughs> he just writes that right into it. Right. <laughs> They're like down in the sewers pulling pipes and shit. Yeah. And Superman shows up, <laughs> saves them. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel the need to clarify that you, you're just joking around. We don't wish ill on Mr. Donner. Dementia is a terrible thing. Uh, we love his films. And 
He directed our guest today in his feature film debut, The Toy. Yeah, I, I think more, I think he should just pretend he has dementia mm. and, and just write it that way. Yeah. You know, I think the most shocking thing to come out of this, this story was how old uh, Mel Gibson is right now. Do you have a guess? Uh, let's see. His birthday's coming up Oh, in January. So right now, I'm going to say he's 68. Oh, that's not too bad. 64. Yeah, pretty close. I don't know. 64 seems like a, maybe it's because we we're almost 50. 64 seems young. He seems like an old dude now to me. Well, the closer we get to 50, I've been starting to use the slogan, 50 is the new 20. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So 60 is basically the new 30. We are Benjamin buttoning this all the way to the <laughs> grave. I don't know. I don't know if I want to see these. Well, look, again, 64 doesn't seem old to me at all. Mel Gibson seems like he's lived a hard life, so he seems older than 64. I don't know if I want to see him running around. I allow it because as long as Harrison Ford pushes into his 80s to make Indiana mm. Jones, everybody younger than that, get your get off your lazy a- make me an action mm. movie. Yeah. Where's Arnold? Where's Stallone? Give me some more action movies from these guys. You know, I just saw a trailer where he's in like a, um, he's in a film with Jackie Chan, and it's like a period movie where they're in... <laughs> It's really bizarre. You got to look up this trailer. It's so bizarre. It almost looks like it's a parody. Everything Jackie Chan does looks like a parody. <laughs> well, he made this one really cool looking movie, which I've never seen, but my dad recommended it and I really want to watch it. It's a totally serious film. It's film. It's called The Foreigner yeah. and something happens and he keeps... <laughs> that's is, this, is this why your dad described it to you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, my dad's my dad is still as sharp as a tech. And they think this guy's just, uh, why am I going to tell you this whole story? This is a show about the 80s. Anyway, we'll talk about yeah. that later. <laughs> it yeah. looks really good. Okay. Hey, in other 80s news, and this comes to us via nworld.org. That's E-N-W-O-R-L-D.org. We have learned that there will be a new Legends of the Grey Skull Masters of the Universe role-playing game. Uh, the game's being produced by Fandom who are the owners of D&D Beyond. Uh, it's going to be coming out in 2021. It seems like all good things will be happening in 2021. 2020, almost behind us. Thank goodness. Everything good, 2021. Which will include a 250-page hardcover book with pull-out maps. Mm-hmm. And look, I loved Masters of the Universe when I was a kid. I didn't own a single toy. My buddy did. We play at his house. I wished I could have him. But I love the TV show, so uh, yeah, this would be fun. But, you know, hey, we're not even playing Dungeons & Dragons anymore. (laughs) Yeah, pandemic messes everything up. So in the Legends of Grayskull tabletop role-playing game, players can customize or create characters to overcome high-stakes challenges and fun in uh, Eternia, where magic meets technology. Were you a fan enough of the He-Man TV show that you'd be interested in doing an RPG? Mm, I would probably want it, yeah. Yeah. Just so I could read it, look at the pictures. I got, a, I got a lot of stuff like that on the shelves. Yeah. If I was going to run Masters, I'd have to have it set in New York. Mm. And Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We're talking about two different things. Not the movie, the TV show cartoon. I know, but, you know, as the, as the game master, I control mm-hmm. everything. So if a whole world you could pick, you're going to try to emulate the, wait, that, was the movie in New York or was it LA? But anyway, I know I what you're trying was- to do. Maybe you're saying the wrong city, but I know what you're still trying to do. They were somewhere other than where they should have been. Yes. So to be clear, that's what you're trying to do. Trying to make it yeah. like that crummy movie you like. Yeah, pretty much. Mm, no. Fine. All right. Nobody else probably cares, though. I highly doubt it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe like three other people. All right. That was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Our guest today started his career when he was a mere eight years old 
and accomplished more by age 11 than most of us do within a lifetime. In just those few years, our guest appeared in more than 100 commercials and performed on Broadway with Diane Wiest and John Carradine. As if that weren't enough, he next made his feature film debut in The Toy, starring alongside two comedy legends, Jackie Gleason and Richard Pryor, in a film directed by Richard Donner. And the next two years would find him appearing in the timeless A Christmas Story, and starring as a child entrepreneur in Kidco. By the mid-1980s, our guest had already taught us much that we may choose our families, that we should rise above triple dog dares, and that we can aspire to be more. Please welcome to the show, Scott Schwartz. Scott, hi. How are you, man? I'm doing good, Well, There are a few folks who are as iconic or as associated with the 1980s as you are, and uh, you've got the classic films to back it up. So thanks for joining us. We wanted to, our, our show explores you know, what made the 80s, 1980s, so fantastic and different as far as pop culture and media goes. And again, you were involved in so many films and TV shows that epitomize that for us. Mm -hmm. But going back a step, you know, I, I know you started so early in your career. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm estimating you around 10 years old or so when you first started uh Eight. Eight years old. Okay. Wow. Did you even have time at eight years old? Were you already a fan of TV and film that it would be something that you'd be aspi aspire to be a part of? Uh, I was a fan, never aspired that that wasn't really how it happened. I was attending a, uh, a movie club with my dad. Everybody's dad has that thing on Saturdays, whether it's <laughs> hunting, fishing, biking, whatever. My dad was a movie guy. So we would get up at eight 30. We'd be out the door by nine. We would go from New Jersey into Manhattan and we would start off at Town Hall, which was on 43rd and Broadway. And we would see an old serial chapter, a B Western, an Abbott Costello, a cartoon, and then a short feature. We'd go from there, have a couple of hot dogs, go to 42nd Street. I was probably the only six-year-old to see every kung fu and horror piece of crap <laughs> <laughs> from 1974 through about 1980, 81. Uh, but it was during that time after after we did 42nd Street, uh, we would go to a place called the Market Diner, get something to eat, and then we would go over to the club, uh, which was just inside the link, just outside the Lincoln Tunnel on the New York side. Right. And uh, after a couple of years of going there, one of the guys was producing a commercial and just asked me, he said, Hey, you're very outgoing. I've known you a while. This is what I'm doing. Would you want to do it? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really where it started. And then it was, you're really good. The camera loves you, blah, blah, blah. Let me introduce you to a casting director and agents and all this. And it just kind of yeah. went from there. You know, I'm already fat. I'm from New Jersey originally. I grew up in Jersey city, New Jersey. So just on the opposite side of the Hudson there from Manhattan, so I am familiar with New York. The area you're talking about, this is pre-Disneyification uh, of uh, Times Square. You know, it was, uh, oh, God, it was definitely a, a rougher area. Uh, you had your mix of adult oh. video uh, theaters in there, too. It's, it's well, 40, 42nd Street was your double features, yep. the electronic places, the electronic stores, right. you bought everything, <laughs> and the adult cinemas. Yeah, That's what 42nd Street was, you know, and, and your hot dog vendors. Yes, but they're still the best hot dogs you can get anywhere in the world. With mustard, by the way, Ray, out here in Ohio, Scott, they put ketchup on hot dogs. It's just, it's a terrible. I do mustard and kraut. 
Yes, of course, right. They call it a they call it a New Yorker. Yes, I I actually just do mustard and onions. Is that right? I don't actually use ketchup. Oh, onions, okay, but kraut's better. I like the cooked <laughs> onions though, and that brown sauce that they. Uh huh. Yeah, that's the one. Oh yeah, and then the the potato knishes, mm-hmm. <laughs> black potato knishes, and right. and Ray, I'm sure you don't know how they did it, but they would cook it. And then they would take and they would open it up with the knife and they would roll the mustard right inside mm. the potato knish. Mm. I could taste it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could taste it now. <laughs> I miss eating meat on the street. Okay. So anyway, so, you know, you say that the camera loved you. And uh, if the Internet is to be believed, you appeared in some hundred plus commercials within a three and a half year period of time. Yeah, uh, five year. Yeah, I did okay. over a hundred and over a hundred, you know, uh, voiceovers and. I did Broadway, I did off-Broadway, you know, and then just the next step was movies. Thinking about, and maybe it's because of the way you started, and as you said, the camera loves you, you know, loved you when you were starting out, that I'm thinking about most actors, they audition for many more roles than they actually get cast in. Oh, sure. So, to estimate, you'd had to have auditioned for hundreds and hundreds of Um, shows and. I don't know where you'd find the time as a kid to do all that. Well, most of the auditions were started around 2.30, which was, you know, Officially after school, which was in, of course, New York, but coming from central New Jersey, the Bridgewater, Somerville area, about 45 minutes from where you were, uh, I would leave school early. I'd leave school at 1, 1 1.15, whatever need be, uh, and we would head in. Now, of course, I mean, there's tons of auditions you don't get. And uh, I I was fairly lucky. I made friends with a couple of the casting directors. Because I was working, I had done work for them and they liked what I did. You know, they liked my look. Okay, fine. And I mean, there were several casting agents that realistically I didn't even have to audition. They would just mm-hmm. call me and I would just have jobs, right. you know. I mean, you know, now, again, it's it's the looking back to now kind of syndrome <laughs> that when when I'm auditioning between 77 and 81, 82, the Lincoln Tunnel was two dollars, <laughs> yes. you know, and now I believe it's either eighteen or twenty. You know, I wow. think it's eighteen. The expenses were different, times were different. You know, you know, so the financials were much different, also. So, you know, you mentioned that you were on on Broadway, and uh, you were in the now infamous, short-lived uh, revival of Frankenstein on Broadway, right? Which I think opened one day and closed the next. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, we we had twenty nine preview performances at the Palace Theater. Right. And we opened and we closed. <laughs> um, basically, I mean, it's sort of like uh, one of those tales that you kind of wonder why and how come and yeah. could things have been different and all that kind of stuff. The Frankenstein was never a critically acclaimed anything. And uh, we opened up and it was incredible. I mean, the sets were 50 foot high. The special effects guy, his name was Bran Ferrin. He did the movie Scanners. Mm, right. I mean, this guy was amazing. When the, when the lightning bolt struck, every seat in the house jiggled. I mean, right. it was great. We had David Dukes, the actor, not the other guy, David <laughs> right. Duke. No, not him, David Dukes. <laughs> right. uh, John Glover, sure. two-time Academy Award winner, Diane Wiest. Yes. Uh, the director was Tom Moore, who also did Grease. Right. Forgot the one person, the old blind man. Oh, yes. John Carradine. Right. Right. Not David from Kung Fu and not his son, you know, not the boys, the father who goes all the way back to the house of Frankenstein in 32. Right. You know, Um, he played the old blind man. It was a great cast, great everything. Okay. So the reviews come out at our opening night party 
and they're not really that good. And our advanced sales were so-so. May have had the worst commercial ever on television in the history of the theater. <laughs> I don't remember. The that screen one. would go black. A hand would come down like this. Like the poster. And a lightning bolt. And it said Frankenstein live at the palace. <laughs> that was the whole commercial. <laughs> yeah. So about 1.30 in the morning, you know, when the trades came out and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Allen Kramer and Joseph Papp, the producers, Terry Allen Kramer, who had a few drinks at the party for sure. <laughs> so she tells the two leads, she tells David and John Carradine, show's over, that's it. And of course, the next morning they got up and realized, you know, maybe we should try and give this a shot. It's a lot of money. The biggest mm-hmm. non-musical flop in the history of Broadway. Mm-hmm. But David Duke had already gotten the movie Only When I Laugh with uh, for Neil Simon. Neil Simon wanted him, but he couldn't do it because of Frankenstein. As soon as he found out the show's closed, he's released from his contract. Nine o'clock in the morning, he called his agent. Ten after nine, he had a job. Mm. So when they went back to get him to say, hey, we're going to try, he said, sorry, got a movie. (laughs) So you got no lead, no advanced sales, horrible commercial. And that was that. It's surprising that they wouldn't have a good commercial. I remember that era in New York, you know, in New Jersey. We'd get those commercials from Broadway shows and they'd be full of scenes and montages. I remember Little Shop of Horrors. I still remember the commercial that they would have and how as a young kid, it was still kind of terrifying to see, you know, the plant. The Audrey. Yeah. And how they sort of made it. They The commercial was kind of like a 1950s sort of like horror movie, how they made it. Yeah. But adding the music helped. Yes. You know, we really didn't have that. Yeah, we didn't true. have a musical. We had a straight drama, yeah. Yeah. you know, but I, I always thought, you know, if they had shown some of the, the, uh, the laboratory, right. You know, with the monster, the beginnings of the monster, I thought that would have been fun, but they didn't end up doing it. Yeah. So, of course, you know, shortly after that, you're, you're cast in the first film that we come to know you in, and I believe it's your debut film, right? Um, the Toy. Yes. It's my understanding that the, at the time, they were looking to cast someone, a child, who resembled Jackie Gleason. You looked nothing like Jackie Gleason as a child. Of course not, but the casting call itself, yeah. they weren't looking for a Jackie Gleason okay. lookalike. Okay. Gotcha. But what they did is they promoted it through all of the Toys R Us stores, Right. And they it was a Jackie Gleason lookalike contest. Ah. And the winner was flown out to California and uh, they got gave they gave him a screen test. Right. You know, so that was the 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 way to get people interested in the film. Right. You know, especially kids and then their parents and whatever. Um, They did pick a kid. Right. And he came to California and he, he I believe he actually screen tested the day before myself and the other actor. Right. That the real actors screen yeah. tested for the movie. Um, he was he was terrible. You know, they pretty much knew he wasn't an actor. They just were being nice to a kid. You know, yeah. and I get to meet him. I have no idea who he is. Mm. He's never sought me out to say, "Hey, dude, I oh. was the guy who won the whatever." You know, that would be neat. Yeah, I'm sure he remembers who he is, and you know, <laughs> I'm sure he does and remembers that experience. The other kid who was the finalist, you know, it was me and him for yeah. the role was Henry Thomas. No kidding! Wow, you know, from ET. Sure. And, Many, many, many other films. And uh, we had never met. We didn't meet that day. They kept us separately, whatever, you know. But we met a short time later. And then it was years later when we actually, you know, when you become an adult, you can have an adult conversation, you know. And uh, he said to me, he said, listen, we are friends. I love you to death. But (laughs) he goes, but he goes, you broke my streak. He goes, four movies in a row. I had gone up and I had booked. Mm -hmm. You got the toy. You broke my streak. 
<laughs> and I mean, it's 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 a kidding joke. Sure. Between two guys that are cool with each other. Yeah. You know, it, we're it, friends. It turned out OK for him. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of that, though, how did you handle then as a child the roles you didn't get? I imagine it's hard for an adult to handle the rejection that they could get for these types of things. Um, you know, uh, I was always fairly mature for my age, especially being around adults as much as I was, yep. you know, between going to the movie club every Saturday um, on my vacations and stuff, I would go out and work with my dad. He was a window cleaner. So I would work with adults. So my head was not, you know, when I was eight, nine, 10, I was 12, 14, mm. 17, you know? Uh, so I understood, I understood what you didn't get it meant, right? you know? And uh, I mean, my agent explained it great. She said, listen, has nothing to do with you. Right. If you're not five foot, whatever, you don't have dark hair. You don't have brown eyes. <laughs> you're not 160. You only weigh hundred pounds, whatever it is. Yeah. Those are normally the differences in why you don't get a job, you know, in showbiz. Yep. The director has a particular look in mind yep. and that's what he's looking for. Or it's like the toy. Um, it was personality and they were uh, almost deathly afraid to book a kid without a great sense of humor. I know that sounds stupid, but because you had Gleason and Pryor. Sure. You had two guys who were non-PC, no filters, no nothing. If you got a kid that's just going to go like this, mm. it's all over. Along those lines, you're cast opposite these comedy legends. Are you, again, you're pretty young. Are you well enough aware, but you've seen all these films? You know, obviously your oh, dad sure. seems to brought you up in the pop culture of the time. Were you aware of their, their sort of standing? And did that make oh, sure. you intimidated as a child? Too? No, it's, it's. Again, it's one of those things where I knew Stir Crazy. I knew Silver Streak. Right. I knew Bingo Long. You know, Live on a Sunset Strip hadn't come out yet, you know, right. but I, I had seen live in concert. Even though there were curse words and all that, my father was like, who cares? Whatever. Yeah. Nobody's killing anybody. You know, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, they're words. They're yeah. just words. And on Gleason's side, I was I was what you would call a fanatic. <laughs> I was a smoky and a bandit absolute junkie. <laughs> You know, I mean, I love the Honeymooners, but I was right. a Smokey and the Bandit fanatic. And I love the Hustler right. with Paul Newman and, and Gleason. So I knew who they were. And Richard Pryor made me feel very comfortable the first time I met him. I was in the director Richard Donner's office and I was playing his pinball machine. And he's like, Scott, you got to stop that for a minute. There's somebody here to see you. <laughs> and I turned around and there's Richard Pryor. Wow. And I said, I said, Mr. Pryor, it's really nice to meet you. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, forget that. Don't ever call me that again. Richard, Rich, Dick, I don't care what you call me. Just do not call me Mr. Pryor. That was my father. That's not me. Oh. So he put me at ease, you know, right. fairly quickly. Right. And of course, I, I love to do impressions. I, I memorized everything. So doing him and stir crazy and all, he, you know, <laughs> he, he thought it was funny. Gleason, the first time I met him, we were, we were having a meeting about two days before we were going to start shooting up in his big presidential suite and all that. And, not even hello. And Richard Donner says, Scotty, go over and uh, do that sheriff thing you do for, for Gleason. <laughs> so I don't even say hello. And I walked over to him. And as I, I walked over, I'm still shorter than he was. I was four foot six, you know, at yeah. the time. So he's still bigger than I am sitting down. And I walked over and I said, there's no way, no way that you could come from my loins. 
As soon as we get home, first thing I'm going to do is punch your mama in the mouth. <laughs> he, he starts laughing, but immediately in his head, he goes, well, maybe they just rehearsed that. Mm. That's, you know, and he goes, oh, so do you know more? And I said, well, of course. He said, well, go ahead. <laughs> this was the test. Yeah. Well, mm. I proceeded to do about seven more minutes of Buford T. Justice. Mm. And he loved it because he knew I knew who he was. I appreciated who he was. I idolized him and I wanted to learn from him. Yep. So we got along. Wow. They never treated me like a kid right. ever. Obviously the, the uh, Richard Pryor, of course, his onstage antics were very mature and <sighs> adult and Jackie Gleason's adult antics were more off screen. You hear these stories about sort of uh, his capacity for drinking beer. For example, there's some tales about that. John Schneider tells a story about that meeting him uh, sneaking onto the set of uh, smoking and the bandit. But so, you, so they just behaved how they normally behaved. They weren't worried about offending a kid because, like you said, you proved you had a sense of humor. Oh, no, I, I heard everything in the, in the English language. There was no question. <laughs> I mean, there was not a topic that was out of touch. Don't talk about it. Don't think whatever you want. It mm-hmm. was it was on. Obviously, the the uh, the toy is your your uh, film debut. Uh, but you're still mm-hmm. a young. You're still a young person, and uh, ultimately you'll go on to be in Christmas Story and Kid Co. You know, in short order. Is there a time though? I guess in between these, that you're back home or you're somewhere. You start. You're first recognized. You start being able to get that sense of what it's like to. Be- I did the toy. Came home two months later. Did Kid Co. When I got home from shooting Kid Co., the toy had come out in the theaters. You know, that's sort of when the the uh, the little bit of a change started. It was either kids that knew me that were cool. And then you had the kids that were jealous, getting recognized in the mall, you know, Bridgewater, Somerville, the Somerville Circle, or, you know, sitting having a slice of pie at Dominic's Pizzeria at the Somerville Circle. And people walk in and and I could hear them across the room. It was, that's the guy, that's the guy, you know. So that's that's kind of the change. And, you know, you know, then the following year when Christmas Story comes out and I'm, I'm going to theaters and I'm doing appearances, you know, for some of the local theaters because my dad did their windows, mm-hmm. right? you know, so there was no such thing. There was no autograph shows at that time. You know, right. you just kind of came and sat in the lobby and somebody would bring you something to sign, you know, a piece of paper yeah. or whatever, you know, does it feel like a sort of a mixed uh, blessing and a curse to be a kid? And like you're saying, some kids start treating you differently and some strangers start recognizing you. Is it a mixed feeling of being famous, but also maybe people that once treated you one way are starting to treat you differently? Oh, it happened in some cases, you know, most of the time they weren't good friends. You know, they were, they were people from school that had their own issues and problems. Yes. You know, I had a bully like anybody else, but we didn't call it that. We didn't do what they do now. You know, we are own ways of handling that. You know, somebody messed with you in school, you had friends and the kid would end up in the shower four days in a row with his clothes on (laughs) in the gym. And then they'd say, listen, you know, you leave Scotty alone. Otherwise this is going to be a regular habit. You know, that's how we handled it back then. I mean, I had, you know, I had a bully and he was an ass and, yeah. you know, I, it's it's not like today where you've got TMZ and you've got social media following and, and all this other stuff, yeah. you know, so I could still pretty much do anything. You know, I could go to Espos and Raritan. I could go to, you know, any steakhouse I wanted, any place, you know, if somebody recognized you. Okay. You know, hey man, aren't you? Yeah. You know, oh, can I get a picture? Sure. If they yeah. had a camera. Back then, no cell phones. Uh, so you got no true. cell phone yeah. cameras. You know, I had a good time with the the little bits of notoriety that I had over the years. And, you know, uh, my personality helped and it led me to meet a lot of people and do a lot of things I probably wouldn't have done if I was an ass. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned a, a Christmas story. And, of course, it's it's the Christmas. Oh, that. It's the... <laughs> 
We're, we're going to have one question for you. We're going to move on like you never were even in it. I'm sure you just no, get kidding. to a point where you well, yeah. I imagine folks probably come up to you constantly and are still triple dog daring you. I mean, right. It's probably, all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to hear you tell the story about how the, the tongue on the pole trick works. It, there is a real there was a real flagpole there. They put a piece of plastic over it and then painted it to look like an old rusty pole. Basically, oh, yeah. they put a hole in it about the size of your pinky nail with a tube that went down into the snow and in the snow was a little motor, like a dirt devil vacuum clean, just a little motor. Yeah. So when they turned it on, it was basically, mm. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I've spray painted some PVC in my time, making costumes for my daughter, etc. That stuff smells terrible for a long time. I don't imagine what licking it would be like. <laughs> okay. So it's funny you, you bring this up. Okay. Number one is can't smell anything because it was 20 to 24 degrees below zero. <laughs> We were so worried about freezing. The rest of it didn't matter. <laughs> when we we walked over to the pole and I said to Bob, I said, how does this thing work? Bob Clark, the director. Right. And he walked over. He said, I turn it on. So they turned it on and Bob walked over and went, <laughs> he stuck his tongue there and he just pulled it off. He said, see, no problem. I said, oh, okay. Now it didn't hit me for, I'm not, I'm not kidding. It was probably close to 32, 33, 34 years, somewhere in there. When finally I realized something <laughs> that I never realized before. When Bob did it, nobody cleaned the pole. Oh, <laughs> so he licked the pole. I licked the pole. That's sanitation yeah. for you. There you go. There's your child labor laws. Hard at work. And there's probably some FX guy who licked it even before that, before he, he no. brought Bob over. No, no, mm, okay. no. All right. So I mean, it was Bob. perfectly painted. Yeah. It, I mean, you don't ever see, of course, a straight shot of that part of the pole because there's a hole there. Yeah. But it was great because, you know, where the hole was around it originally, it had the brown, rusty coloring to it or whatever. Oh, yeah. But between Bob licking it and then me licking it <laughs> for two days, yeah. all that stuff was gone. Oh, no. That means it no. went somewhere, though, Scott. I mean, you've consumed. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it went in and then it went out someplace else, you know. <laughs> you should have developed superpowers by now, I would think. Uh, Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, of course, uh, moving forward in time, again, you should have just had these one after another, uh, these iconic films in the 1980s. Of course, uh, Kid Co. comes out uh, the next year after that, 1984. You know, at its heart, it's a it's a story about entrepreneurship, I think, and, and, and children. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, it's probably no coincidence that I just about a year after this film came out, maybe two years, I started my own DJ business. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And, and my wife today is one of her favorite films, and she has her own business. Uh, I know you have your own business now for 30 more, 30 plus years. I don't know what it, it was. It Maybe was it Kidco or Ray? Maybe were you inspired to do? There was something about that era inspired me as a kid to want to do more. Were you, it sounds like you already had that spirit to be motivated to have a acting job at eight years old. But again, I didn't choose that. That just mm. kind of happened. Mm. And then I well, just kind of went with the flow. Uh, I was more like Dickie Cessna. I really was in my own life okay. because I had a golf course down the street from my house in, in Bridgewater. <laughs> You're in and, the water getting the balls? <laughs> uh, a little, not too much in the water, more coming down the eighth fair, uh, a fairway. Yeah. There's woods right there. And my friend and I would walk up and down the woods finding golf balls. We would go to the putting green yeah. and we'd put the balls into egg crates and have a big <laughs> container of lemonade. Balls were 50 cents. Lemonade was a dollar, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was doing that back then before Kidco. Wow. Oh, God. My dad My dad used to bring me home 
stuff uh, from different places. He, you know, being a window cleaner. Right. So, I mean, I would get erasers from Burger King with the Burger King guy on it or whatever. I'd sell yeah. them for a quarter. You know? <laughs> I mean, I was doing, you know, baseball cards. I did a little bit of that, you know. So you do read the script then and you're, you just connect with this character immediately? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dickie was great to play because it was, yeah. you know, sort of a, a extension of myself. Wow. You know, other than I didn't have sisters and right. he did. That was, you know, that's it. Right, right. Would you do a Kid Co. Part 2 as an adult <laughs> and still be selling manure? No, because they probably wouldn't. They, they, they went from the manure business to taking care of gophers to getting into real estate <laughs> and other things, you know. So, no, I don't now. Kind of diversify, right? You got to ex- right. expand that portfolio. I'm just trying to get him to, to put the bug in his head to do a part two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're fans of the film. Um, you know. In all of your stories, you know, and, and going back to the very beginning, you know, you talk so fondly about your memories with your dad and your dad ultimately became your manager. It seems that in many ways you, certainly at least in the public, you, you avoided the many pitfalls that, you know, usually challenge child actors. I didn't grow up in L.A. Hmm. I grew up in New Jersey. That had a lot to do with it. I see. Um, I wasn't stupid. <laughs> that had something else to do with it. Uh Richard Pryor was my mentor, my muse. He was my go-to. Right. That had a lot to do with it. Right. If there were things I was thinking about doing this or that, whatever it was, hmm. I could call Richard. I had, you know, when we left the set, he's like, here's all my phone numbers. Wow. You can always find me. You have a question, call me. Wow. And uh, there were times I did call him with, you know, either to catch up or to say, hey, blah, blah, whatever. you know, ask him whatever. Um, and he was always gracious with me, with his time, with his words. And I moved out to California, moved out uh, near LA after high school. And it took me a couple months and I found him, mm. you know, at the com- somebody found him at the comedy store and they, right. I had put an, I, I joke, I put an APB out on Richard <laughs> at uh, the laugh factory and at the comedy store. Right. And one of the guys from the comedy store called me up and said, Hey, Richard just got here. I know you wanted to come down. Right. And I was there and that was it. Is it true that you tried your hand at stand-up comedy at the comedy store yourself in the late eighties? Oh yeah. Somewhere? Oh yeah. And- no, I had fun doing the stuff that I did, you know, and I mean, I, I did the audition for Mitzi and she's like, Oh, you're really <laughs> funny, but you need six more months. And I'm like, I'm not working for free for six more months. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> I don't care. You know, no, I, I ended up still working, yeah. you know, and I did some opening, you know, Monday night things or whatever, but I learned enough. Okay. Uh, situation arose while I was working there. I was working the main room. It was a Monday night, which was, you know, really kind of open mic night, but the regulars came in. So they pretty much took up all the open mic night for the other people. They went in another room, but Richard was coming in. So one of the waitresses came and said to me, Hey, Richard came in, he's in the back. So I, I went in the green, in the little green room that was behind the main room stage. And it's Richard, his wife, Jennifer, Sam Kinison and Robin Mm -hmm. Williams. And oh. Sam was a regular, so I saw him yeah. all the time. Rob and I had met several times at this point and uh, talked for a few minutes. It was time for Richard to go on. So I opened the door. I'm holding the door. I'm the doorman, you know. And uh, if you go straight ahead about 80 feet, you make a left. That's you go into the, the, the main room. You can go sit down and watch a show. But if you go off six feet, make a left. That's the back of the main room stage. So Jennifer... Went all the way out and went and sat in the thing. Sam Kinison walked out, made a left. Robin walked out, made a left. Richard says, what are you doing? I said, uh, I'm working. I got it. He said, no, 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 you come with me. <laughs> so he grabs me, takes me through 
the curtain. So Robin Williams and Sam Kinison had grabbed microphones and Richard and I sitting behind them watching. There's two little steps. And we watched for about 25 minutes. And Sam turned around. He was done. He hands Richard the microphone. So Sam sits down next to me. And now it's Robin and, and uh, Richard. And they do about 25 minutes. And then Robin is done. He turns around. He hands me the mic. <laughs> and, I'm, and, you know, come on. I'm not in that spectrum. I don't even belong in that world. And, I'm, and I, I looked at him. I said, uh, what would you like me to do? <laughs> and I was being honest. And he goes, that's your boy. Go get him. Go get him. <laughs> okay. So I took the mic and Robin sat down. So Robin and Sam are sitting behind me and Richard. And Richard was talking to somebody in the audience. And finally he got done. He turned around. He sees me standing. He goes, oh, you want some of this. <laughs> and I went, that's what I did. I just put my hands up. Well, he proceeded to tear into me like nothing I had ever heard in my whole life. It was every white boy, little penis joke you could possibly imagine to make. You know, the he saw my driver's license, a picture of me on a pony, you know. I, well, he went on for a couple of minutes. I didn't say a word. And finally, he's like, you got nothing to say? And I said, I was waiting for you to shut the F up. And now it's my turn. Well, I turned around and I, let, and I just let him have it. Not in a bad way, you know. Well, I didn't hold back and I just went way overboard. I mean, every (laughs) joke I could think of to make from him and, you know, what extras he was having sex with and this one and that and all this stuff. Well, we did. We ended up doing 20, 22 minutes, whatever it was. And finally, Rich is like, okay, dude, we're done. That's (laughs) enough. Okay, we got it. So we all come up. We take a bow. We go on the back. Sam gives me a high five. He's like, dude, you were great. Wow. Robin grabbed me by the cheeks and then he let go and he kissed me on the cheek and he goes, that was beautiful. Wow. And Richard looks at me and he goes, yeah, it's true. You're the white son I never had. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's unbelievable. I mean, and, and, and these folks that you mentioned, not only are they huge, you know, I mean, come on, they're all, each of them is an icon in its own, in their own right. No question. Okay. So now we're going to play a game where we, you know, Scott, if Scott's game for this, whatever you want, I'm it's good. a new hot game that's on the show and it's called... In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Special edition, where Ray's going to bring out a baseball card and, and Scott's going to tell us how much it's worth. Let's see. Uh, no, I don't actually have any, like... Wow, you did your research and homework. That's no, great, no. Ray. <laughs> Thanks a lot, baby. <laughs> now, That's I, beautiful, I baby. Unfortunately, I don't think I have a card worth more than a dollar. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. You could have had him appraise them at a dollar. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, it wouldn't be too hard to figure out Mike Hargrove's card is worth a dollar probably probably a dollar yeah what do you got like a 77 78 uh, Cleveland 80, Indians my card yeah, drove 83 yeah it's 83 what about that one you sent me a picture of right that uh, uh, uh that's the the uh the sporting yeah, news all-star selection from 68 i have the tony oliva the tony oliva yeah i have that one from the minnesota twins yeah it's probably a three dollar card dang it i thought yeah. for sure ray you're gonna have some kind of you know you didn't realize you had a mickey mantle in there or something now, and that was our special edition of In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. So, uh, final question for you, Scott. You know, our, our show is about proving objectively that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture. So, how do you feel the 1980s compares to today? The things that go on now, social media has made life, you know, uh, I think a horror show for kids, especially. Sure. You know, if you were getting bullied or whatever in our, you know, in our days growing up, 
Yeah. You left it at school. Right. You didn't have to bring it home. You know, now every, every kid's got this, you know, they got the smartphones and they got the laptops and it's, it follows them 24 hours a day. You know, right. I say, I miss those days. I don't miss being 14 necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Other than how the body feels as you get older. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But I miss the attitudes of people. Mm. You know, if you said something that somebody didn't like, you walked out of the room, you know, like an Andrew Dice Clay, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> you say something people don't like, yeah. you walked out. That was, you know, it's not for you. You turn the station, whatever it is. Yeah. Now people take it as like an, a personal insult to them yeah. that you say something that they don't agree with. Yeah. Like, no, it yeah. was a joke or I was making a statement. You don't agree. Okay. That's okay. We live in America. We live in a free society. It's okay. Not to everybody think the same way. Right. And you can't look back. Yep. You can't play Monday morning quarterback. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and all that crap. Yep. Uh, many films in the eighties, people are like, "Oh my god, how did they make this?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Because we didn't think like you schmucks." Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had an open mind. Yep. But yeah, but all the different, even the different movies, the teen movies of the eighties, from Lucas to Stand by Me to Sixteen Candles, yep. all the Chris Columbus stuff, the Cameron Crowe stuff. Now people are looking back on, oh, you know, maybe they, maybe we shouldn't show these to our kids because yeah. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, weird science, yeah. you know? Oh my God. What a horrible movie. Yeah. Two guys in a, in a, a, in a complete fantasy sequence create Kelly LeBrock in, in a t-shirt and a pair of undies. Yeah. Oh my God. This is a horror show. Yeah. Something you know, any of us would have wanted to do back then. Yes. Well, of course. I mean, that, you know. And still today. <laughs> absolutely. Kelly LeBrock in her prime. There's no oh, question, you know. So it's like, you know, but people want to go back and say that these things are not good and these things that they, listen, you take this thing too seriously, folks. Yeah. We're here from A to B and it goes by like that. Uh, have a good, I mean, my thing is have a joke and a smile and a laugh every day. Mm. That's me. Well, Scott, we can't thank you enough for your time today. Again, uh, you were a part of our childhood and our childhoods were better for it. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Listen, everybody, have a wonderful Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, New Year, holiday, everything season. And, you know, stay safe and healthy. Really cool, dude. Great stories. My goodness. I don't think anyone can top that last thing he told us about being at the comedy store. Uh, Watching stand-up comedy just from Richard Pryor would be one thing. And also Robin Williams. Okay, you're not going to beat that. Like a private showing. Sam Kinison too? And then you get to go on stage? So, like we talked about, he was one of the first child actors I recall seeing in the 1980s. And he was in these films where, you know, you were either inspired, like in Kidco. Seriously, I wanted to go out and start a business. I did. Just a couple of years around, around that time. In the toy, <laughs> I aspire to be wealthy. <laughs> no, it's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Own a human? Is that it? Yeah. I didn't, I've never aspired to own a human, no. Yeah, Kidco, I wanted to be a, uh, a businessman too, but I didn't live on a farm, so I didn't have any crap to sell. <laughs> you know, friend, you are selling crap all the time, <laughs> mostly on this show to me, and I'm buying all of it. But in spite of all that, I don't know if we proved anything about the 1980s. We have proven oh. beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wow, okay, sure. That Scott Schwartz yeah. has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that the 1980s was the best decade. Absolutely. You didn't see that coming, did you? No, because it was like a Russian nesting doll of (laughs) conclusions. Okay, hey, we will talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.